Well, we welcome everybody to this week's edition of View from the Press Box. I'm Scott Hogan, and joining me, as always, is Brad Hallier. And Brad, we typically, this time of year, summer's here, we usually start off uh, with the Royals, but I think it would be uh, more than fitting to start off with a national title comes home to the state of Kansas, as most people were aware the Hutch Blue Dragons played uh, Snow College of Utah this past Saturday down in Little Rock, Arkansas for the NJCAA Football National Championship. And uh, midway through the third quarter, Brad, it did not look good for the Blue Dragons down 21 to 10, but then uh, a big comeback. They hold on, got a late interception to win their first ever football national title, 29-27 under first-year head coach, uh, Drew Dallas. Uh, I was real busy this weekend, didn't get to watch any of it. I assume you did. What was your first impression when the, the clocks hit all zeros and the Blue Dragons were on top by two? You know, Hutchinson Community College just doesn't really have much of a football history, as you alluded to. Not only was that their first national championship, but that was the first time they ever played for the national championship. And I want to say that they only had maybe two other undefeated seasons in their long history. It's not that they have a bad history, it's just you know, pretty average. And they've been pretty good since Ryan Rhodes uh, came in 2007 until his last season in 2019. They won a conference title. They normally made bowl games. They had some very exciting teams, exciting players like Alvin Kamara and Cordero Patterson. So it was just, it's just still kind of, I don't know, a little bit different seeing Hutchinson Community College win a football national championship. I mean, I've been around the conference long enough. I mean, that's stuff reserved for Butler. That's stuff reserved for Garden City. And <laughs> and here comes Hutch all of a sudden winning a national championship. And and the second thing that kind of st- sticks out is we talked a little bit last week about how, you know, three undefeated teams, Cisco, Texas was the third, and they had a, a legitimate complaint that they felt like they should have been there. But I think Snow definitely proved that they were capable of playing in the national championship game. I mean, heck, they led they, they led pretty much uh, the entire, what, three quarters or so. And uh, they de- definitely proved themselves as being worthy of playing in that game. Well, some of the uh, numbers from that game, Edwards for Hutch, what a game on the ground. He had 20 carries, 141 yards, a couple of touchdowns. He was named MVP of the championship game and they they use both their quarterbacks. Uh, I hope I get the first name correct or the last name. Is it libel? There's libel. Yes. Libel yep. 10, 10 for 22, 150. And then they brought in um, Ogbonna late and gave him a huge lift five for five through the air and 128 yards. So uh, not only were they able to control the line of scrimmage somewhat with their run game, they got, incredible production um, i know 10 for 22 was you know that's not great percentage wise but still 10 completions for 150 yards and they got great production out of both their quarterbacks which is exactly what they needed in this game i think part of the reason for the change was that the the offense was just kind of i don't want to say stuck in neutral it just really wasn't doing enough and i just don't know if the, the decision was you know we got to try something different you know cj has been our starter he's healthy Let, let's see what he can do and just his calm demeanor, I'm sure, had a lot to do with that comeback. You know, they're down 21 to 10, and they scored three touchdowns on his first three possessions. And again, he was only five for five, so it's not like he went out and, and you know completed 19 to 20 passes for three touchdowns or anything like that. But I think his leadership and his savviness and his calm demeanor, I think, were just important uh, to the Blue Dragons in that comeback. But not only that, uh, Snow College's uh, starting quarterback got knocked out of the game. 
uh, Garrison Beach was 11 for 16, a couple touchdowns. And then Gabe Sweeten came in and was, and even though Gabe had a really nice touchdown run on, on, on an our RPO, he was just two for nine. So, mm-hmm. and, and an interception late that sealed the game for the Blue Dragons. So there's really something to be said about having two legitimate quarterbacks out there that could play and, and, and really got the job done for the Blue Dragons. And that, that was really, I think, uh, among several other things, uh, the, one, one of the biggest reasons that the Blue Dragons were able to win this game was because they did make a quarterback change and there was really no drop off. If anything, it gave, I think, the team maybe a little bit of an emotional lift. Well, yeah, I think you mentioned maybe the most important thing, Agbana's um, calming influence um, on the team, especially when you're behind. There, there's a famous um, story I've heard of Joe Montana, uh, one of those Super Bowl wins against the Bengals when they're down late in the game and they're, they're pinned deep in their own territory and Montana um, gets to the huddle. And of course they're waiting for the, the TV timeout to end. There's a story of him, you know, the, the, the offense seems a little tense, you know, we're down and uh, he looks up into the crowd and says, Hey, isn't that John Candy, the actor? <laughs> and everybody kind of looks and it's just like, it was this deep breath, exhale. Okay. Let's go win the game. And I, I think that's kind of what, as you alluded to, that Ogbonna brought to this team when, when they really needed it when they were down in the third and early fourth quarter. Yeah, and, and, and hats off to CJ also for having that kind of maturity. Of He, he was not – he was – you know, he mm-hmm. was the starter of the entire season. He suffered a late-season ankle sprain. And then Dylan Leibel just had some tremendous performances late, including the game where CJ got hurt against Independence and, and – you really couldn't fault the coaching staff for either one of those guys. It was kind of a win-win situation. And look, CJ was, I'm sure, disappointed that he didn't get to start that game. But, you know, he didn't go out there and, you know, try, hey, I'm going to show everybody that I should have been the starter this whole time. You know, he didn't go out there and try to do too much. He was the same guy. The same guy he's been all year. You know, the, the leader, the, the quiet leader, the, the, the guy that everyone trusted out there. And I, I just don't think you can put a value on something like that. Uh, you, you can't. That's just – some guys in that situation would have pouted. They wouldn't have, uh, knowing they weren't going to start, wouldn't have maybe put in the work and prepared like they were going to start, like they were going to play. I mean, he didn't know. I'm sure they said, hey, you got to be ready. We may need you. But that's easier said than done with somebody that, like you said, would have clearly been disappointed, was the starter most of the year and not the starter in the biggest game of the probably the program's history. Um and to step up like that is, is, is absolutely huge. And I don't know that you can say enough either about uh, this is a first-year head coach and Drew Dallas here at, at Hutchison. I got to watch him uh, play quarterback at Kansas Wesleyan for his dad, Dave Dallas, um, a good player in his own right. But you can't say, I mean, I can't even express how hard that is to step into a new program and not only keep them winning, but to, to win the whole the whole mar all the marbles in his first season. Right. And I think uh, his demeanor is very similar. I think to CJ's and that I think coach Dallas is just kind of a very calm, cool. Uh, you know, I don't think he gets rattled. He's a, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, he's, he, he played quarterback. So he's got, some, you know, he's got something to, to, to relate to his quarterbacks too. And I just think that his demeanor is just so, even keel that even a 21 to 10 deficit, which something the Blue Dragons had not seen all year was a second half that de- deficit. I mean, their closest game before that was a 16 point win over Garden City, a good Garden City team. And to be down 11 in the second half and just for the, for their 
the, the, the two guys that had no sense of panic whatsoever that they needed to have no sense of panic were, were Coach Dallas and C.J. Ogbonna. Well, how much do you think now Hutch ends up, I believe, 8-0 with this win, you know, in a, a spring season, a shortened season. Normally, you know, Hutch would have had um, by this game would have played probably 10 or 11 games at least before this point. Um, you're always going to have those naysayers out there. Oh, there should be an asterisk. It wasn't a full season, blah, blah, blah. There was another undefeated team. Um, it's not. That's not going to make any difference to Hutch. I think everybody knows they earned this. But how much talk about that do you think there will be in the, the coming months leading into what we hope is just a normal fall season? I think the one thing you could maybe make a fair mention of is that Cisco deserved a chance at the championship too. And I think that's maybe the one thing you could maybe say about this, but that, that, that doesn't have anything to do with the length of the season or anything like that. You see three undefeated teams or one undefeated team, and then three teams with one loss or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, which two do you choose? So I think that's one thing to, to think, but you know, Mississippi chose to play in the fall. The NJCAA essentially said, you guys do what's best for you, but if you play in the fall, you're not eligible for the championship. So Mississippi made their choice. They said, okay, we're going to play in the fall. Okay, you're not eligible for the championship then. Uh, Minnesota shut down their season, although Minnesota generally does not have a national championship caliber team. Uh, Lackawanna, which plays in the Northeastern Conference out of Pennsylvania, they've had some really good teams before. I think they played for the championship a couple of years ago. I think they played maybe three games before shutting their season down. But look, I mean, Hutchinson went through the gauntlet of the Jayhawk Conference. They, they, they beat Independence easily. They beat Garden City by 16. You know, they, they, they crushed Coffeyville. They crushed Butler. You know, good teams in their own right. And I, I, I don't think that there's any doubt that Hutchinson was, <clears throat> was the best team in the NJCAA this year. I don't think so either. You just know that there's always, you know, it, it, it's so eerily similar to the BCS system days where it always seemed like there was – the the Boise State or somebody out there that was undefeated or you felt like there was always three teams in two spots. Um, so it's nothing new to college football to end up with that kind of a, a scenario. What is going to be really interesting, and Coach Dallas alluded to this in one of the articles I read, that he said, we'll enjoy this for about 30 days, and then it's time to get back with it. You know, you're going to be in the middle of July, um, you'll start your conditioning drills and all of that kind of stuff. You'll you'll head into August, start practice, and try to get ready for a, a late August, early September start to a fall season. So how, and I think this is what I know you and I were, were fascinated, a little cautious about what these kids' bodies, especially the Hutch and Snow that played clear into uh, almost the second week of June, what that's going to do. To such short turnaround to 18 to 22 year old bodies. So what kind of impact are you anticipating that to have um, coming this fall on these kids? That's a great question. That's actually probably the million dollar question right there. I will say that there are a couple things that I do think really kind of worked out for Hutchinson pretty well in that they, yes, they played well into June, but they also had about a three week break between their season finale against Dodge city and then playing snow uh, they had a game canceled against Fort Scott back in April, so that gave them a, you know a couple weeks to rest and, and recuperate. And I believe they also had I'm looking at their schedule right now. I thought they had another off week somewhere in between there, but maybe they didn't. So and and it was a shortened season. So they you know normally they would play 11 regular season games and then maybe a bowl game. Well, this year they <coughs> excuse me this year they played eight games. 
So I'm not saying that eight games is easy by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it, I, it probably wasn't nearly as taxing. And, and plus, you look at some of their scores. I mean, they were able to play a lot of guys this year. So mm-hmm. the, 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 the toll that maybe on like a Ty Edwards or, or one of their other regulars like that probably wasn't quite as bad as if they maybe played a full season with a lot of close games. Yeah, because we also we look a lot at the NAIA with, uh, you know, being heavily involved in the KCAC. And, you know, they did their usual 16-team playoff, which started, I believe that was the second or third week of April. So that championship game got bumped clear into the last part of May. I would say uh, it was such a varying difference in who played how many games. I think they, they required a minimum of I believe it was five games to be eligible for the for the postseason and the playoffs. Um, teams in the KCAC, most of them played about eight or nine games. So, um, but then they did the regular playoff instead of you know just a championship game. So that the teams that were in the playoffs probably got somewhere close to a normal season, maybe eight or nine games similar to what Hutch played. So I, I but they will have had a maybe a little bit more time off um, than, you know, Snow and Hutch, but most of them are going to be pretty similar as far as the off time before they're back at it uh, in the summer. And I wonder too, not only physically, but maybe even mentally because the KCAC, they also played that, that chopped up schedule. They played in the fall. They stayed with it all winter into the spring season. A couple of teams opted out, did not play in the spring in the KCAC. Um, I think maybe mentally as much trying to, you know, you had to focus for almost eight months and you get maybe a month or two off and then you're right back at it. I, I think that'll be key as well to go in with that right mentality for a normal season. Well, that, and I think uh, maybe the, the, the mental part of it is that, you know, when these guys, you know, again, they're normally playing 11, 12 games in, in, in the fall, but now, you know, some of these guys, like especially Hutchinson, some of these guys, they're, they're going to be playing in excess of, you know, 18, 19, 20 games in one calendar year. That's a lot of games. And if you even go back before that, I mean, they essentially started the season late March. So they're going to be playing 10 games or a, oh, maybe about 20 games in a span of what, nine months? Yeah. That, that, that's quite a few games in, in nine months. Not the physical as much, but mentally – when they get to week nine, week eight, week 10, you know, and especially if, you know, for the teams that maybe are five and five and just kind of floating along there a little bit, are they going to have the mental capacity to finish it? Well, I look, you know, I cover Sterling and they played five games in the spring four last fall. And with their current schedule, they're going to play on zero week on the road in um, at Midland College in Fremont, Nebraska. I think it's August 29th or something like that. So I mean, I'll have a, I'll have a real firsthand view of what this can do physically and mentally. Um, they had a lot of injuries in the spring and they won, did win their only game on their final game against Tabor, but um, it's going to, it's going to be fascinating. I, and I, I certainly, we're all hoping that we don't see an increased occurrence of injuries. I think that's, probably the naysayers biggest concern right now is okay are we going to have you know 20 percent more injuries or what and we're we're certainly not going to know until probably november december um what impact that decision had on the the health of these young men right right and 
that it goes back to you know depth and, and things like that, and of course maybe even see this coming year, you know, games in September and October. You know, if a team is up or even down big, do they maybe really start emptying the bench earlier than normal? You know, mm-hmm. or or even beyond that, you know, do do coaches go into the season thinking, okay, we've got to play more guys right away? So, I don't know, it'll be an interesting dynamic, one that uh, most coaches, if not all coaches, uh, have never dealt with before, and hopefully will never have to deal with again. Well, congratulations again to the the Hutchison Blue Dragons, their first ever uh, national title. I, that party will go on for um, several more days. I assume they're in Hutchison, um, and sticking with the Blue Dragons. Um, they have a new coach I know they're very excited about, and Tommy DeSalm coming from Cowley, who was the national runner-up, and he's got that high-octane offense, and he added a local kid, Brad, that's um, very good as far as your high-octane o- offense. We saw him play a lot in high school. I live in near just outside a Little River, and Jaden Garrison's going to take his talents to um, Hutchison Junior College next year and play for Coach DeSalm, and I I am fascinated. I saw the way he could light up games. I saw him score, I think it was 44 points in three quarters in a, a postseason game a couple of seasons ago. Um, about a six, he's about a six one, six two, fantastic shooting guard, loves the up-tempo. I, I'm going to be really fascinated to see how he fits in. I think it's going to be very, very good with uh, Coach DeSalm and the Hutch Blue Dragons. I think it's a good fit in that he's a good athlete. I mean, he can really get up and down the floor. And he can, and he's got Steph Curry kind of range, so I think that's a pretty good uh, mix for Jaden Garrison to come to Hutch, and that's he's kind of the, the kind of player I think that Coach Desalm needs in his system. You know, the guy that can get up and down the floor, he, who can bomb threes from pretty much anywhere. I think he, I think I just think it's a natural fit. Well, I'll be curious, and I think most people when they talk about high octane offense, okay, what can they do on on the other end of the floor defensively? Um, you know, I think Garrison, especially at six, I can't remember exactly what he's listed at. I think it's six one, if I recall correctly. Um, at a guard position, you know, he's going to come up against some some kids, and you know, the JUCO uh, is loaded with you know Division one type talent. He's going to come up against some kids that are his size, maybe a little smaller, that are quicker than him. And I think that may be the the biggest adjustment for him to learn how to play defense at that level. Yeah, there's going to be an adjustment period. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And 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 Coach DeSalm likes to say that it's not really my offense that leads to all these points that we score. It's the defense that leads to all these points that we score. So uh, we all like offense. Everybody likes seeing offense. And I think that's why Coach DeSalm's uh, style is going to be very fun to watch. But beyond that, uh, if, honestly, if you can't play defense, it's probably not going to be a very good fit for you. Well, I think one of my favorite all-time teams was Loya Marymount in the days of Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball, and I forget what they have, 120 or 30 points a game at the collegiate level. But most people forget about them is they pressed you man-to-man the entire game. It was chaos, and they would give up some easy baskets, but I think their gamble was we're going to get more steals and more looks at the basket than we're going to give up. And I think people forget that about – those teams that were so good at Loyola Marymount. And I think that's kind of a little bit of coach DeSalm's theory is, yeah, we may, we're going to gamble. We're going to give up some easy baskets, but we're going to get more in return with our defense. Yeah. And I, I also go back to the Billy Tubbs, Oklahoma teams. I mean, the, yeah. the, eight, the 87, 88 team that lost to Kansas in the championship game, they, they, they pressured 94 feet 
for 40 minutes, but it was Mookie Blaylock and guys like that and, and Ricky Grace and Dave Seeger that would get steals in the backcourt or at midcourt and just lead the easy transition baskets. And that, that was really where they made their, their, their money out of. And uh, even going to the early nineties with Arkansas and, and, you know, under coach Nolan Richardson, you know, the 40 minutes of hell, the same kind of thing. <laughs> it wasn't that they could score, they could score, but they got so many steals and, 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 and defensive pressure that led to steals in the backcourt and easy baskets. That, that That's really where it starts at. And that's the way Little River played. I mean, they, they gambled a lot. You know, they would double, sometimes even, I don't know if it was on purpose, triple team a guy in the backcourt um, trying to get him to, you know, throw the ball out of bounds or, or lob a pass too much where they could rotate and get a steal. And yeah, they, they gave up some easy baskets, but for the most part, they got more steals than they gave up easy baskets and easy baskets of their own. So again, um, we'll be fascinated to watch him, but I, I think it, as you do, he, he will do very well um, at Hutch Juco. Well, plenty of baseball talk. It's uh, most of the postseason for the collegiate ranks are wrapping up, and we always take a look at the big leagues and the Royals. Um, we kind of caught them in an up-and-down period again, Brad, when we last talked. They had um, were right at 500. They got to 29 and 26. They had a five-game winning streak as of recording here on Tuesday. They're now on a three-game losing streak to fall back to 29 and 29. They're six and a half out in the Central. Uh, they Last week, they swept two from Pittsburgh, got the first two, lost the last two at home to Minnesota, and then lost um, last night in the first of three against the Angels, uh, eight to three. Then they're going to stay out on the West Coast for four more um, at Oakland. So again, it was uh, nice to see the five game losing streak, but this is that point again where they need to stop this three game losing streak right now and do not let that, you know, roll into another 11 game losing streak like we saw about a month ago. Right. And I think that's the one thing that I have to go back and look, but I think the 2014 or 20 or the 2015 Royals, I think their longest losing streak of the year was four. So even if you lose, you know, it's not ideal to lose eight out of 10, but you know what, if you can curtail, uh, but everyone's going to have valleys during a a 162 game schedule. You know, once again, the key is, can you, you know, sustain that consistency where even if you lose four in a row, can can you quickly bounce back with maybe a couple wins to write the ship a little bit? Okay. Then you lose three more. Okay. Can you, can you write the ship again? And it always just feels like it that the Royals are on the brink of another seven or eight game losing streak. They lose a couple that maybe they shouldn't have lost, or then they lose three in a row, and all of a sudden you're looking over your shoulder to see the see the boogeyman's right behind you, and it just feels like once again, gosh, how, how are they going to muck this all up? How are they going to lose eight in a row now? So hopefully they can find a way to win these next two games against the Angels. And they those last two losses to Minnesota, if I recall correctly, they were both one run losses. They had yes. ample opportunity to win both of those games. Uh, not last night. They were down four to nothing um, going into the second inning. They gave up four in the first. Um, they're they're bringing up some some new guys. Uh, I think that was named Dauber. I think was the starter last night. Um, so they're they've had some injuries with their pitching staff. They sent Junis down to AAA to try to work on some things. Um, so they're they're kind of tinkering with that right now. Um, Stamon and Duffy are coming off the injured list. So hopefully they're going to be healthy and Duffy. Um, I think the plan is still to put him 
back in the rotation. You know, we've heard rumors that maybe he would go into the bullpen a, a little bit. Um, so that'll remain to be seen. But that that may be where my my point of concern still is is right now with the, the starting rotation and then finding that that number one guy to close down games. Yeah, they they just don't really have the pitching depth. I don't think to 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 contend this year. That's not really a surprise. I mean, I think we've all been in agreement all along that this team was probably between 75 and, you know, 75 at worst, 85 at best wins. And, and frankly, if they finish in that range, I don't think anybody would be shocked or even disappointed. And a lot of their pitching is still young, and I'm just not sure if some of these guys are really ready for it yet. I mean, we kind of saw that last night. But, you know, at some point uh, – you have to be able to bring these guys up and kind of let them learn. You just hope that they, they don't, uh, uh, you know, get, get, get the uh, whatever you call it when, you know, they, they get so shell shocked that they never recover from it. So that, that would be one concern I would have about bringing some of these pitchers up, but you know, you got to bring up, you got to bring them up some point. Yeah. You just don't want them to get, like you said, blasted, you know, their first two or three outings uh, and get, demoralized and you know some some guys um, are just cocky enough that they'll go back out you know after giving up a six runs and an inning and two-thirds and think they can go out and 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 go the distance of a shutout the next game some that really works hard on them mentally they feel like they'll let the team down and then they're then they're tentative as they go out and that can that can snowball the other way so hopefully like you said that um I think Mike Matheny, he's he's savvy enough. I think he can manage that very nicely. Um, one thing that continues to be really good is Salvador Perez, another fantastic week. He's up that average to 279 after last night. He's homered 14 times, knocked in 40, both leading the team. So pitchers are still trying to figure out how to get Salvi out, and not too many of them have figured it out yet. I've been just really impressed with his uh, going to the opposite field more than he usually does. Uh, yeah. Another uh, opposite field home run that he hit just a couple days ago. So he's up to 14 homers, 40 RBIs. He's got 11 doubles, batting 280. Uh, he's really doing his job right now. I mean, you really can't fault Salvador Perez right now. Only, only six walks to 60 strikeouts, but that's give and take with Salvador Perez. But uh, really can't, uh, can't, can't fault what he's doing this year. He's doing what he's doing and uh, what he's expected to do and a little bit more. So again, the Royals are two more with the Angels and four at Oakland. And I saw this. We, we are well aware baseball keeps track of everything, and they have these obscure records and numbers. Did you see the one that Jorge Soler could actually set, or at least he's on pace? I know it's still early in the year. Did you see the record he could possibly set for reaching base on catcher's interference? He's reached base five times this season, two more than second place. Uh, somebody with the Padres has got on three times on catcher's interference. Um, he's on pace to reach base 14 times. The record is 12. So, <laughs> it, 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 I mean, I don't know what to even think about that re record. If they say, oh, he's the all-time leader in reaching base on catcher's interference in a single season, and he's – he leads the league since 2019 in that category, and it's just—it's an obscure one, but it's a fascinating one to to reach base like that. I wonder if he's got a method to the madness. Is is his bat just a little bit long? Does he just naturally have kind of a longer backswing or something? I mean, there's there's got to be a reason for that, doesn't it? <laughs> you would think so. You know, does he? 
I don't know how you could actually stride back. Does he lean back a little bit with his swing to get that bat back closer um, to the catcher's mitt? I, I, I don't know that anybody can explain it, but yeah, five times already, and that's on pace for 14. That'll be fascinating to watch, and that would be a uh, Having to be an interesting milestone to have um, in your resume, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah. Most most reached by catcher's interference in one season. So good good luck, Jorge. I hope you get it. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking I'd rather have that one. I think – does Don Baylor still have the all-time record? He, he was always getting plunked. He had that for a long time, Most reaching base most times by hit by a pitch. I think I'd rather have the catcher's interference than that one. Is this one physical, from the Astros? Physical. Craig Biggio maybe break that record? He may have. I, I just remember Don Baylor for the longest time had it, and I just thought, man, physically, I think I'd rather have the, the catcher's interference record, <laughs> personally. Right. So, <laughs> so again, the Royals, 29 and 29 on their now on their West Coast swing. Well, a couple of uh, College World Series involving local teams have wrapped up. Uh, we talked a little bit about Cowley College at the – up in Grand Junction, Colorado, they ended up uh, going one and two. Uh, both of their losses uh, were to Central Arizona, strangely, as that worked out. Um, they were eliminated on a 12 to eight loss and went one and two at the World Series to their final record, 47 and 10. Before we talk about that game, because they made a big rally, couldn't quite overcome, but how much do you think that their second game? of that tournament took out of them because it was a marathon or they beat Shelton state. This sounds like what would have been over the weekend, this score 24 to 14, they beat Shelton state and just a marathon game where you just went on and on and on with multiple pitchers. So how much do you think that influenced losing that third game, having to play and pitch so many guys? Well, that, and they gave up, what, 38 runs in their three games. I mean, wow, that's just <laughs> it's very unlike Cali to have the kind of pitching that just gets lit up like that. I mean, just that's just remarkable. I know you're out in the mountains and all that high altitude and uh, out in Grand Junction, Colorado, but still, I'll just that's a lot of runs to be given up over the span of three games. They gave up 12 against Central Arizona, then they gave up 14 against Shelton State, and then 12 again against Central Arizona. Just That's, that's just a lot of runs to give up, even in victory. Yeah, I mean, you're happy to have the win, but like you say, you realize what that does. As we all know, any kind of a, even a, a four or an eight team tournament is a war of attrition on your pitching, especially once you fall into the consolation bracket. But a 10 team, if you are not fortunate enough to get one of those top, uh, what is it, top four, top two seeds, and you got to play in that first round, basically an extra game, it's just, it's crushing to go into the loser's bracket. But then, like you say, you play in a 24 to 14 game. It's just that kind of seals your fate, even though you win the game. Right. Cause you're just going through all your pitchers. And frankly, even if you're up, say, you know, 22 to, to 10 going into the seventh inning, I mean, you've already given up 10 runs. You're, you're probably a little bit on edge about, you know, what, what pitch <laughs> take very much to get back into the game. So yeah, that, that, I'm sure that they used up a lot. <laughs> It was probably Johnny Bullpen by that point. Hey, are you ready to pitch? Uh, I haven't pitched all year, Coach. Get in there. Well, I'm at the – you know, if you're up 22 to 10 into the seventh where the run rule, I, I, I think they – did they use the run rule at Grand Junction? Yes. I'm putting my closer in, Brad. I'm right. frank with you. I'm ending that game. Right. Uh, 
we, we're going to take the run rule and get this thing over with. We're not risking going eight or nine innings and have to burn through another pitcher or two. I, I just wouldn't do it. I would, I would literally put my closer in, have him pitch one inning, and he should be still fine for the next game. But that, that's what I do in that situation. Yeah, they actually beat uh, Shelton State in eight innings, and uh, there wasn't a ton of uh, mercy rules at the tournament. I think the, only the national championship game is not – uh, a mercy rule game, but yeah, they, they did beat central Arizona or I'm sorry, they beat uh, Shelton state in eight innings. So yeah, it is, they do have the mercy rule out there. Well, congratulations again. Cali finishes up uh, 47 and 10. And right now they are um, kind of ruling the um, landscape there in the, the Jayhawk. We'll see who can step up and, and challenge Cali next season. Another kind of miracle run ended for the um, Lady Swedes of Bethany College in the NAIA um, Women's College World Series as they ended up getting an at-large. They also joined Ottawa. So two KCAC teams making the field of 10 in the World Series this year. Uh, Bethany went three and two. Southern Oregon got them twice, and then they, they eliminated them. Nine-nothing that was in basically what was the semifinals of the consolation bracket. They were trying to get in um, to the finals of the consolation bracket and on to the championship. But um, what it does, not just for their program, but for the conference as a whole this year to have their best team in the the regular season and the tournament, Ottawa, and then an at-large team, get three teams in the opening round and get two to the World Series. I think that just really gives – the KCAC, a huge boost. They get onto the big stage where their programs can be seen and they can be seen playing successfully against the nation's best teams. I think that does this conference um, a huge shot in the arm and a world of good moving forward to what we hope again is a normal spring season, which it pretty much was for them this year. Well, not only that, but when you can get your uh, at-large team like Bethany all the way uh, to win what three games at the World mm-hmm. Series? They won their opening round game. They won a couple games on the backside, and their only losses were to the national champion. So I think that uh, speaks pretty well of, of the KCAC right there. That uh, the team that didn't even win the conference did as well as they did at the national stage. I'm, I'm fascinated to watch the conference moving forward from a from a, an appearance like that, and to see if that just elevates them and they can continue that level of success i mean it's it's difficult to get to that level and it's even more difficult as we know to maintain that level of success against the nation's best yeah absolutely and you know i'm, I'm not sure what the I, I know there's some very strong softball at the nai level i know some great oklahoma schools and you see what these oregon schools it was an all oregon championship game if you if you saw that uh, between southern oregon in Oregon Tech, so mm-hmm. some great softball all around. And like I said, I know that Oklahoma is usually very strong up uh, in NAIA softball, and it looks like that uh, you know Oregon is just as good and some good softball all around. So congratulations, you know, to the KCAC on a great postseason. And if I saw correctly, I think that was back to back. Of course, not twenty twenty one, but nineteen and twenty one for Southern Oregon. So um, they did a fantastic job keeping that program intact to win back-to-back uh, national titles. And congratulations to the Swedes and then there to the, the champion, Southern Oregon. Uh, we don't talk a lot, Brad, about the NBA. Um, they're into their playoffs now into the second round. But I thought we had to because this is, this is a guy that 
we saw a lot being Kansas fans because he was at Oklahoma, but Trey Young is having just a fantastic, not just season, but now in the playoffs through six games, he's averaging 30 points and 10 assists. He's got the Hawks out to a one nothing series lead over the top seed Philadelphia uh, in the, what would be the conference semifinals. Um, we saw him, you know, give KU nightmares there when he was at Oklahoma. But I think it's fascinating because we have seen players his caliber that go into the draft lottery. They end up with the teams like the Hawks of the past, you know, the, the Kings, some of those teams, and they almost go into obscurity. They're good players, but they don't have the success because they don't get to go play with the Lakers and those high-profile teams that are seem to be good every year. They put a few pieces around him, and what he has done to lift the Hawks, I think they were 41-31 and 31 this year in the regular season. They're the fifth seed. It's just fascinating, and not only is he scoring, he's getting everybody else involved um, with this 10 assists he's averaging, and it's just he's been amazing to watch. And being Big 12 fans, uh, we're not that surprised with what Trey Young has been able to do. I mean, we saw what he did at Oklahoma, just a silky smooth player. He's so good at Oklahoma. I'm glad to see what he's doing in the NBA playoffs and doing what uh, we kind of knew what he was capable of. So I just thought that was kind of – Kind of worth mentioning. I've kind of seen a few headlines of him, but again, I don't follow the NBA um, real closely. But he, he's doing some fantastic things, and if he can somehow lead that Hawks team past the number one seed into the the conference finals, that would be amazing. Which it looks like. Um, and again, this is probably a topic for another day. But the the juggernaut that the big three there and with Brooklyn, uh, they're just annihilating. Milwaukee in two games so far in that series if, if they could if the Hawks and Trey Young could get there I don't think they could certainly get past Brooklyn I don't know that they can get past Philadelphia but if they could I, I think that would be good for the NBA as a whole to have one of their young stars lead one of those franchises that has been bad for quite a while into the spotlight that would be huge for the NBA I think I saw that, what, five of the eight teams remaining have never won an NBA championship, and the three that have, I think the last time someone won it was like, was it the Sixers in 83 or something like that? I mean, it's... Oh, wow, it might be. Yeah, it's... Uh, it, it's we're going to see some new teams uh, challenging for the championship this year, and I'm when I don't have a dog in the fight, I always like to see some, some new teams out there. I've always been a, a Clippers fan. I was even a fan when they were just, you know, winning maybe 10 games a season. <laughs> I don't know why. I always was. Um, so I'm kind of intrigued to see they, you know, barely escaped their first round series. I, I don't think for whatever reason that they're putting it all together. I can't put my finger on it. But, yeah, it's it's great to see uh, new teams in there because I, I do get tired of the the same two teams or same four teams or whatever being – in their year in and year out. So uh, good luck to the Hawks and, and Trey Young moving forward. Well, a lot of my time here recently, and especially here in the next uh, nine days, Brad, has been with the uh, summer collegiate team, the McPherson Pipeliners, as tonight they're going to start an eight-game and nine-day homestand. The only day they're not going to play in the next nine days will be this coming Sunday. So if you're a, it's all free admission if you want to come out and see some good Summer League Baseball, um, come out and see the Pipeliners 
hard team so far for me, Brad, to figure out. They're two and two. They they won their first two with some fantastic pitching. They won six four and two one. Um, they've dropped their last couple of games. Um, most recently Sunday to the team that they're going to play tonight, the Midwest Moose. They lost eight to three in that game, um, and they've given up quite a few runs in their last couple of games. So. Um, it's interesting, and I think they've got better pitching than they had a couple of summers ago. Uh, I'm more concerned probably about their offense because until Sunday's game, it took them four games to get their first extra base hit. Everything had been singles for them. They got a couple of doubles against uh, Midwest Moves, but I know through the first three games I'm trying to remember I didn't add in the fourth game they had stranded through the first three games I believe it was 32 runners so not only not getting the extra base hits but those key hits um, I think is what has kind of come to the forefront of my mind I, I think the pitching will keep them in quite a few games but I think if they got to start getting those key hits and some extra base hits Sometimes I kind of wonder if it takes some of these guys a little bit time to adjust to using a wood bat. It's not that they haven't used them before, or even played summer baseball before, but when they use their composite bats um, throughout this, you know, winter and spring and all that, I wonder if it does take a little bit of time to get used to the wood bats. Uh, there's something to be said about that. It's it, it is a different, uh, it, you know, ball just doesn't carry as well. So. I, I don't know if that's got anything to do with it or not, but uh, it's it's definitely an interesting dynamic with the, some of these summer teams, especially early on. And we've had some uncharacteristically cool days where the wind is, has been more of a detriment than a benefit. A lot, of, a lot of these parks, the wind blows out with the south wind in the summer, and you see a, even with the wood bats quite a few home runs. So we, we've seen more situational baseball and especially bunting is a lot more fun in the summer leagues, Brad, because we all know that it's so much easier. It's still an art, but you can deaden that ball a lot better with that wooden bat than aluminum bat. Um, I've seen some fantastic bunts laid down. And I think to me that adds an element to these summer leagues because some, every coach is different. Um, Matt Elliott, the coach for McPherson, he'll play a little bit more small ball than some. Some, everybody, you just swing away. I mean, it's just that's the way you do it with some of the teams. But they are bunting, and they're running quite a bit. So they've been aggressive, and it's fun to watch when you're trying to move runners up with the bunt. Yeah, I'm kind of an old-fashioned uh, baseball guy. I think bunting is uh, kind of a lost art. And I know it doesn't sell tickets. I know it's not the fun the fun thing to do in baseball. But at some point, you're going to need to drop down a bunt and if you can't do it at a big time, you know, you're definitely uh, – you, you need to be able to, to work on that during the season because, like I said, at some point, someone's going to be, be, need to be able to drop down a bunt. So I, that's just kind of the way I always like baseball, you know, the small ball, the taking bases, the stealing bases, the bunting, the, you know, hit and run where you slap it to the right side and there's just no one there and the ball just rolls and rolls and rolls. So that's just that's just kind of my preference. It's mine too. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of seeing it all the time, but teams that, you know, sometimes will swing away when you're expecting them to bunt and they do, then they do the opposite the next time around they'll bunt when you're expecting them to swing away. I think I just, again, to me, it adds an element uh, to the game. So that's why these summer leagues to me are very intriguing. So again, you can hear all those home pipeliner games coming up at adastroradio.com. Just go to the sports page. They are on um, the channel sports number one for everybody that wants to listen or again it's great tailgating come on out it is free admission um, there in mcpherson to see 
all the Pipeliner games, and we'll have a, a big report. We'll know a lot more about them with this eight-game and nine-day homestand, um, where they're going to stand in the KCLB. And that is our regular um, topics for the week, Brad. And if you have something to add, we can move into our final thoughts. Well, my, my final thoughts is just on how that now that we're coming out of the pandemic and fans are starting to go back to all kind of uh, professional amateur sports and all that, it has been a little concerning to me seeing what we've seen in the NBA with fans uh, throwing things at players. And we mm-hmm. saw it again on Sunday when the United States men's soccer team beat Mexico in overtime, there were two instances of after the United, first, first one, after the USA took the lead in overtime, the American players went over and celebrated by the big group of uh, Mexican fans. And they just got pelted with all kinds of debris, you know, bottles and beer. And, and one of the American players, one of their top players actually got hit in the face with uh, a bottle that was filled, that was full still. And uh, another incident happened later on during a little fracas between the players over by one of the sidelines and more projectiles came from the stands. And uh, this time a Mexican player got hit in the face with a, a bottle that had, that was still solid. So uh, it's, just, it's just concerning to me that we see these kind of things happen, well, whether, whether again, it's the NBA or fans throwing things at a soccer game or even just getting a little bit angry at, at juniors, you know, baseball game with the umpire or whatever. You know, I know it's been a long time since, um, uh, We've been able to really enjoy sports as a fan by going to games and whatnot. I mean, even during the high school season, sometimes there were no fans allowed. Sometimes there's just one parent of the the players were allowed. So I, I get that it's been a while, but surely we have not forgotten that, you know, in a civilized manner when we go to these games. And, you know, buying a ticket does not give you the right. Going through the, the admission gate does not give you the right to throw things at players or to verbally assault or even physically attack, you know, the, the, the officials in any capacity. So I really hope that people can get a, get a grip at these games and, and just stop doing things that we've seen. I have a, a zero tolerance on that, Brad. And, and, you know, there's cameras everywhere, even at some of the lower levels and stuff. Everybody's got a phone. And all, all as I can say, no matter what level it's at, if, if you can positively identify a person – or people that throw any kind of projectile, a bottle, whatever it may be, on the field at an umpire or a member of a team or a player, they're done. If they have season tickets, gone. They are not allowed for the rest of their natural life into that facility. I mean, I'm, I'm just that way. Like you said, that ticket does not entitle you to be a barbarian. Um, these players have should have rightfully so a reasonable expectation of safety while they are performing for you that is that is a privilege to be at that game it's not a right and like i said if and i encourage somebody if you see somebody do that turn them in that i'm i'm done with that i've i've had it with those kind of fans because it's just it's it's marring the games and it's 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 dangerous somebody is going to get um physically and seriously injured by something you know we've seen the, the monica sellis is getting stabbed or um on a local level you we remember the year that greg dryling um, with the kansas jayhawks got hit in manhattan with a bottle leaving the court cut him uh, i think it was right above an eye you know that was so dangerously close to hitting him in the eye so um i'm i'm with you I zero tolerance they're out they're done they do not come to that venue if they're positively identified. 
Right. And uh, yeah, I, and it's, it's going to take a collaborative effort, you know, not only just people that maybe have, have witnessed it, but, you know, the, the, the leagues and the, the, the facilities have to do a good, uh, a better job of ensuring safety. Uh, I don't know what all that would entail. I know they've caught a lot of the culprits at the NBA playoffs, but you know, when there's literally dozens of fans throwing stuff, at a at a soccer game, it's kind of hard to pinpoint them all. But you know what? Find yeah. one, get them out of there. He, he, even if it's like, well, everyone's doing it. Well, no, I didn't see everybody. I saw you do it. Now get out of here. So, I just think mm-hmm. that you, you got to start somewhere, and it's got to get better. Yeah, and ho- hopefully, again, we won't see any anything serious happen to force action. I think it needs to be, like you said, taken now. Um, these leagues need to be discussing it if they haven't already, which they probably have. What they can do to prevent something really, really bad from happening. Um, I'm going to go kind of a different direction. And this was announced, and I haven't touched on it since it was, but um, we all know, and you and I probably feel the same way about Duke basketball. We hate it with a passion. Um, For years we have, but I have always admired their leader and Coach Mike Krzyzewski, and he has announced that this next upcoming season um, is going to be his last at Duke, uh, we know him as somebody that has led uh, Team USA for for a long time, and I think uh, we're going to lose one of the true good guys at the collegiate level, Brad. I think he has always done it right. Like I said, I root passionately against Duke, um, especially if KU or Big Twelve or basically anybody. If they're playing Duke, I root against them. I just I just always have, um, but I think that he has always seemed to have done it. He always seemed to be very humble, and you and I both got on him a little bit for some of his comments about the pandemic and whether they should be playing or not this year. But I think for the most part, through his, I'm not even sure how many years it is now, that he's been the leader of Duke basketball. I think he has always, for the most part, done it the right way. Um, He's never been involved in probation and all of that, that you see so many high-profile coaches um, get involved in recruiting violations. And I, I think the game after next season is going to be a little bit less and a little bit poorer off with Mike Krzyzewski not being on the sidelines at Duke University. I'll be interested to see if Duke can maintain their status as a blue blood. Uh, I think that's one mm-hmm. of the most difficult things. that I, I think we've seen it with Kentucky, the coaching changes. They can sustain it now. They won't always be you know, national champion caliber when they change coaches. Uh, you're going to run into some duds. But we've seen it with Indiana. They have not been able to sustain it since uh, Bob Knight left. And I, UCLA has had some success here and there since Wooden has left. But I do think UCLA is still on the brink of that blue blood level. I will be interested to see if Duke can do that. And we've seen it, you know, successfully with KU going from Roy Williams to Bill Self. We saw... Yeah, you know, it took North Carolina a little bit, you know, their, their, their first effort with the assistant when Dean Smith retired and then they brought on Doherty. That was, those years were not very good. And then, you know, they got Roy Williams from KU and then they've been uh, fantastic since then. So um, it can be done, um, but I will be very curious again to, to, to see if they can sustain it once, um, once next season comes to a conclusion. Um, so that is our uh, view from the press box this week. We'll be back uh, next week. I'm sure we'll have a lot of baseball talk and a lot of the 
summer leagues are in full tilt and we'll, we'll get creative during the summer. We'll bring in some, some new topics as well. But for this week's View from the Press Box for Brad Hallier, this is Scott Hogan. God bless. We'll see you next week.